welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Hello, hope you're in the mood for some learning today. Let's do our team timeout. Our patient today is still the colorectal module from the general surgical curriculum. And the operation or topic we're going to be covering today is the very exciting genetic colorectal cancer syndromes. So a little bit of background. Genetic colon cancers account for about 1% to 5% of all colorectal cancers. They're often associated with other gastrointestinal malignancies, and the key is to identify those at risk of a genetic colorectal cancer syndrome and implement a timely surveillance program to avoid them progressing to significant colon cancer and metastatic disease. Colorectal cancer syndromes can be divided into polyposis syndromes and non-polyposis syndromes. As the name suggests, polyposis syndromes are characterized by the presence of multiple polyps and non-polyposis syndromes do not really have polyps that form but are predisposed to the development of malignancies. The main polyposis syndromes that I'm going to be going over today are familial adenomatous polyposis or FAP, MUTYH associated polyposis or MAP, Pierz-Jager syndrome, serrated polyposis syndrome, and I'll also briefly mention familial juvenile polyposis and P10 hematomatous tumor syndromes. The hereditary non-polyposis syndromes I'm going to be talking about today are hereditary non-polyposis colorectal cancer, HNPCC, and Lynch syndrome. So let's kick things off with familial adenomatosis polyposis, or FAP. This is an autosomally dominant inherited condition and involves a mutation in the APC, or adenomatous polyposis coli, tumor suppressor gene, which is on chromosome 5Q. There are several different mutations that exist, and there are three different sort of phenotypic presentations depending on where the mutation is in the APC gene. The mutations in the APC gene result in deactivation of the protein uh, that the APC gene encodes, which usually negatively regulates beta-catenin. So the mutation leads to an accumulation of beta-catenin in the nucleus of cells, and this promotes upregulation of transcription in cellular growth processes. And this um, leads to inappropriate transcription and upregulation of transcription, which can predispose those cells to becoming a cancer. There are three different phenotypes of presentations of FAP, and this depends on where those mutations are in the APC gene, like I said before. So the classical FAP is a phenotype that's associated with between 100 to 1,000 adenomas, um, and that's the cumulative number of adenomas. I used to think that was in one colonoscopy, but no, this is cumulative. And the um, gene mutation associated with the classical FAP is between codons 157 and 1595, and this is associated with 100% lifetime risk of colorectal cancer. 
There's another phenotype, which is the attenuated phenotype. And this is associated with 10 to 100 adenomas. And it's associated with um, genetic abnormalities in the five prime and three prime ends of the gene. And this is associated with a lifetime risk of colorectal cancer of around 70%. And these are more likely to be associated with right colon or proximal colonic polyps and cancers. The last phenotype is profuse FAP, and this is associated with more than a thousand adenomas. And the classic codon abnormality associated with this is the 1309 mutation. So on codon 1309 in the APC gene. And uh, this is associated again with a very high 100% lifetime risk of developing colorectal cancer. So as the name suggests, FAP is associated with multiple adenomatous polyps found throughout the colon and the rectum. And these are usually identified or start forming in childhood or early adolescence. And with age, there's an increasing number and size of those polyps. FAP is also associated with the development of polyps in the stomach and also in the duodenum. The gastric polyps are usually fundic gland polyps. And it's worth looking at a picture of these, but these are very commonly seen in patients who are on a PPI, but also develop in FAP patients. These are very rarely adenomas, so most of these don't have a malignant potential. These patients, though, do develop duodenal adenomas, and these are considered to be pre-malignant as part of that adenoma to carcinoma pathway. These usually form later in life than the adenomatous polyps in the colon, um, but these patients do have a lifetime risk of the development of duodenal or periampullary cancers of up to 5 to 10% something to know about these is the Spiegelman staging classification for duodenal adenomas. And this stages the adenomas into stage 0, 1, 2, 3, or 4. And patients are allocated a stage depending on the number of adenomas that are found, the size of the adenomas, the histology, so whether they're tubular, tubulovillus, or villus, and also whether they have mild, moderate, or severe dysplasia. And with an increasing score on the Spiegelman staging, they have an increasing risk of development of duodenal cancer. And also, um, if they have a lower score, they may have a risk of progressing to a higher score over time. So in patients who have um, Spiegelman stage zero, then these patients just need a four-yearly repeat scope. In stage one, they need a repeat scope in two to three years. Stage two, need a repeat scope in one to three years. Stage three, they need a repeat scope in six to 12 months, and you would consider an endoscopic ultrasound for um, in-depth assessment of the duodenal polyps if they have multiple. And then for stage four, again, you would consider an EUS and also uh, consider surgery. It's important as well when considering surveillance of duodenal polyps in patients with FAP that you do both a normal gastroscopy and also that you use a side viewing scope so that you can get a good view of the periampullary region. Other clinical manifestations of FAP include extracolonic or extragastrointestinal manifestations. So one that they like to talk about is congenital hypertrophy of the retinal pigmented epithelium. Uh, and these are like dark shadows or dark patches on the retina seen at ophthalmoscopy. And 75% of FAP patients will have these. And especially if they have multiple and they're bilateral, this can be pathognomonic of FAP. And it may be a way that a sporadic mutation is identified in a younger person. 
Another manifestation they have is the development of multiple osteomas, which are benign bony tumors, and these are often found in the mandible and the skull and also in the tibia. Another clinical manifestation of FAP that I find really interesting is the development of desmoid tumors. And 15 to 20% of FAP patients will develop a desmoid over their lifetime. These are soft tissue tumors. The majority of these will form inside the abdomen, typically in the small bowel mesentery, but they can also develop in the retroperitoneum and also in the abdominal wall. And one of my consultants said she had a patient for her exam that had a desmoid tumor on his back and the patient showed her the scar and said, oh, I had a tumor cut off my back and I have a, a syndrome. And she had to figure out that he had a desmoid and had FAP. These tumors rarely metastasize, but are often locally invasive. Some of them will not progress or will regress with time, but it's important to try to determine which patients are going to have a progressive tumor that may need treatment. It's the second greatest cause of death in FAP patients after colorectal cancer and unfortunately commonly forms in areas where there's been trauma. And as we'll talk about in a minute, one of the management uh, strategies for these patients is that they will have a prophylactic colectomy, which obviously cause a significant amount of surgical trauma. The treatment of these can be really complex and does require a specialty unit, an MDT. But in general, for abdominal wall desmoids, these would mostly be managed with a local resection and intra-abdominal desmoids are usually monitored because, like I said, they may not be progressive or they may regress with time. If a tumor is progressive or locally invasive, then it may need resection, which should be done by a small bowel transplant team or with you know, really close consideration of removal of the desmoid without compromising the small bowel mesenteric supply. And other options include tamoxifen because it may be hormonally responsive radiation, cytotoxic chemotherapy, or even imatinib if there is a C-kit mutation present. But again, this is quite complex and requires a specialty team to manage. Other tumors or conditions associated with FAP include papillary thyroid cancer, which is often a not very aggressive form of thyroid cancer, but they have about a four to five times increased risk than the general population of developing thyroid cancers. They can also have hepatoblastomas in young boys, extrahepatic biliary tree cancers, adrenal tumors, which are generally benign, non-functional adenomas, and they can also have brain tumors such as astrocytomas or glioblastomas. The other thing which is slightly historical, which I'll just mention, is that there are some eponymous names associated with FAP. And in that example I gave you about the patient my boss had in there, uh, Viva, the patient told her that he had Garner syndrome, which is one of these historical eponymous names. So Garner syndrome is now known to be a variant essentially or a type of FAP. It's associated with multiple colonic polyps, epidermal inclusion cysts, and osteomas. And Turcotte's syndrome is the other eponymous name, which is associated with colonic polyps and brain tumors. So turning our attention back to the colon, because this is the colorectal curriculum. The risk of patients developing colorectal cancer, like I said, can be up to 100%. And in patients with classical or profuse FAP, the development of colorectal cancer is at quite a young age, so a median age of 35. 
In the attenuated forms, it's a little bit older, so in their 50s or 60s. The diagnosis of FAP may happen because a family member is a known carrier of the um, APC gene mutation and therefore the family member is tested. But it also can be suspected in patients who have multiple polyps themselves or family members with multiple polyps. It may also be, like I said, a referral that's made for a patient who's found to have CHIRPY or the congenital hypertrophy of retinal pigmented epithelium. A referral should be made to a genetic service if a patient is found to have a cumulative count of more than 10 colorectal adenomas before 30 years old or more than 20 colorectal adenomas at any age or if they have a known APC mutation in a relative. And um, tests can detect the APC mutation about 80% of the time. And if this mutation is not found, then patients should be referred for other genetic causes of polyposis syndromes, which we'll be talking about for the rest of the episode. In terms of screening or surveillance, patients should start screening with a yearly flexible sigmoidoscopy from 10 years old. And flexible sigmoidoscopy should be continued until colorectal polyps are found, at which point they should transfer to a yearly full colonoscopy. And this should be continued until they have a prophylactic colectomy. In patients who have an unknown mutation or a family history of FAP, then they should have a colonoscopy from 10 years old every year until they're 24. And if no polyps are found at 24, then they can have a second yearly colonoscopy until they're 34, and then that can be stretched out to three years until they're 45, and then they can enter the normal bowel cancer screening program. And this would be in somebody who, for example, has a first-degree relative with FAP um, in who doesn't want genetic testing or there's no known familial mutation. In terms of prophylactic surgery, prophylactic surgery is recommended in all FAP patients to reduce their risk of colorectal cancer. And the aim of surgery is to remove all of the potentially affected colonic and rectal mucosa at an age that is, in quotes, sort of soon enough to prevent malignancy, but late enough for them to have had some physiological and psychological development of adulthood, end quote. Uh, so this is usually between 15 and 25 years old. And there's a few different options for surgery. The first option is a total proctocolectomy, which is removal of the entire colon and rectum with the formation of an ileal pouch and an ileoanal anastomosis. The other option is an abdominal colectomy, leaving the rectum and an ileorectal anastomosis. The decision about which of these to do, um, to be honest, is probably a specialist decision. It's good to know that those are the two options. The considerations um, as to which one you would do uh, obviously depend on the individual patient, but some pros and cons include if you leave the rectum, you're avoiding pelvic dissection and the potential risk to fertility in a young patient. And this may be considered in a young patient until they've completed their family with regular surveillance of the residual rectum, as long as they don't have a heavy burden of rectal polyps um, prior to surgery. It may also have a slightly better functional outcome because you're leaving the rectum there as a reservoir and a functional reservoir for stool. A total proctocolectomy has the obvious benefits of not requiring um, surveillance of the rectum and reducing the risk of malignancy more than if you leave the rectum in situ. That doesn't mean that it's completely gone. You can still get 
cancers developing at the uh, anastomosis, or sometimes patients will also develop polyps in the ileal pouch, but it does reduce the risk significantly. If you wanted to have a look at some guidelines, the EVIQ guidelines are quite useful um, and make a nice sort of summary of how you should approach surveillance and management of these patients. Moving on now to MUTYH-associated polyposis syndrome, or MAP, MAP. This is an autosomal recessive. There's only one autosomal recessive in colorectal cancer and there was only one in breast cancer. So all of the other ones are autosomal dominant. And it is a um, mutation in the MUTYH gene. And this is a gene that is responsible for base excision repair. So therefore, loss of a functional gene prevents DNA repair, which leads to DNA damage and the development of colorectal cancers and polyps. The clinical presentation of MAP is multiple gastrointestinal polyps in the colon, which are typically small tubular or tubulovillous adenomas. Um, And there's usually tens to hundreds of polyps detected cumulatively um, and usually in adulthood. So it doesn't occur as young as um, FAP. Upper GI polyps can occur, but are much less common. And there's also theoretically an increased risk of thyroid cancers and abdominal desmoid tumors, but this is a much rarer syndrome, so it's not as well studied. The cancer risk is thought to be about 80% by 70 years old, and these do present later in life than the FAP colorectal cancers. It can present like an attenuated form of FAP, so often this gene is tested for when FAP is tested for, but no gene mutation is found. A referral to the genetic services is indicated in patients with more than 20 adenomas at any age, and if they have siblings with an MUTYH mutation, and also if patients have cancers when they're less than 50 years old, synchronous colorectal cancers, when patients have a mixture of both adenomatous and serrated polyps, and if there's a family history which is suggestive of a um, recessive inheritance pattern. So a good family history is really important. These patients should undergo intensive surveillance, which should start from about 18 to 20 years old and be every two years unless lots of polyps are detected. We don't recommend prophylactic colectomy in this group of patients. Uh, They only get a resection if they develop a colorectal cancer or if they have so many polyps that they cannot be managed colonoscopically. And these patients can be considered for either of those two operations I talked about with FAP, Um, but usually you can leave the rectum in um, because these patients have a sort of less intense form of polyposis and you can just surveil the rectum. Our next topic is Pietz-Jagers syndrome, spelt P-E-U-T-Z, Dash J E G H E R S. This is autosomally dominant inherited mutation of the STK11 gene, which is on chromosome 19P. And the STK11 gene encodes a tumor suppressor called serine threonine kinase. And these patients present with polyps in the small intestine, colon, and rectum. 
But these polyps are non-neoplastic hamartomas, if you remember from our colorectal polyp episode, which are polyps that consist of connective tissue and smooth muscle and often sort of inflammatory cells covered by a hyperplastic epithelium. And these patients' uh, typical presentation is with a intersusception of the small bowel with one of these polyps as the lead point, usually in childhood or adolescence. They can also present with bleeding. The other characteristic features of Piotr-Jaga syndrome are dark bluish buccal and mucosal pigmentation. It's worth looking up a picture of this. It'd be an easy spot question with pigmentation around, especially in the lips and inside the mouth. can also be seen on the hands, feet, genitalia, and anus. These patients are also at risk of multiple other non-gastrointestinal tumors. So this includes breast, ovary, cervical, and fallopian tube cancers, thyroid cancers, lung cancer, bile duct and gallbladder and pancreas cancers, and testicular cancers in men. The diagnosis of Piazziaga syndrome requires two of the three of the following, so both a clinical picture of gastrointestinal hamatomatous polyps with either cutaneous and mucosal pigmentation or a known family member with the syndrome. And if they have two of three of these, then they qualify for genetic testing for the STK11 gene mutation. In terms of the colon, these patients require screening from quite a young age, from eight years old, with an annual hemoglobin, especially because the small bowel polyps you won't get to endoscopically and these can bleed, with a screening colonoscopy from eight years old or earlier if they present with symptoms in three yearly intervals, because they do have a lifetime risk of between 39 and 57% for the development of colorectal cancer. These patients also require a upper GI endoscopy or gastroscopy, as well as a small bowel follow through with a pill cam or an MRI enterography from 20 years old, and this should be repeated every three years. Surgery is reserved for symptoms such as presentation with intersusception or obstruction, bleeding, or for a diagnosed cancer. And these patients also need periodic screening for breast, cervical, ovarian, and testicular cancers as well. And we keep plowing on with these different syndromes. Our next one is serrated polyposis syndrome. This is also called hyperplastic polyposis syndrome, and it's thought to be relatively rare and lucky for us we don't have to remember a gene mutation because the uh, molecular or genetic etiology and pattern of inheritance is not yet known. The diagnosis is based on the WHO definition which is at least five histologically confirmed serrated polyps proximal to the sigmoid with at least two of these more than one centimeter or any number of serrated polyps proximal to the sigmoid with a first-degree relative with serrated polyposis syndrome or more than 20 serrated polyps scattered throughout the colon. It's not clear exactly what the cancer development risk is in this group, with some studies showing between 0 to 60%. But the more polyps people have, the higher risk of developing cancer. And it's important to know that in this group, polyps even as small as 4 millimeters can harbor a malignancy. And if you remember from our colorectal polyp episode, the polyps develop 
malignancy through the serrated adenoma pathway or the hypermethylation pathway. Surveillance for these patients is recommended to be a colonoscopy every one to three years, aiming to remove all polyps more than five millimeters. And if the number and size of polyps make it impossible to achieve adequate clearance, then a colectomy should be considered. And in these patients, often it would be a total colectomy with an ileorectal anastomosis and then ensuring ongoing surveillance of the rectum. Let's talk about familial juvenile polyposis. This is another autosomally dominantly inherited condition and is associated with mutations in the tumor suppressor gene on the SMAD4 or SMAD4 gene on chromosome 10. And that is in 50% of cases, but there are some other genetic abnormalities such as BMPR1A um, and other genes involved. And these genes are basically involved in the TGF beta signaling pathway. These patients present with multiple juvenile or hamartomatous polyps, so the same sort of polyps as in the Pierzyaga syndrome. And these are benign polyps and can often appear in childhood and again cause intersusception or bleeding, um, which may be the way that these patients present. And they can present with hundreds of polyps throughout the gastrointestinal tract. The diagnosis is made after finding an endoscopic appearance of multiple polyps with the histology proving that these are juvenile polyps. And usually the diagnosis would require at least three to five juvenile polyps of the colon or multiple juvenile polyps throughout the gastrointestinal tract or any number of juvenile polyps if there's a family history of this syndrome. The lifetime risk of the development of colorectal cancer in these patients is up to 40%. Unlike solitary juvenile polyps, which are thought to be benign, they can develop adenomatous characteristics and therefore have the potential to go down that adenoma to carcinoma pathway and develop into a carcinoma. This condition is also associated with the risk of other cancers, including gastric, duodenal, and pancreatic There are some other conditions associated with familial juvenile polyposis, and this includes hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia, which can cause bleeding from um, little malformations, vascular malformations in the gastrointestinal tract. And these can also be found in the lungs and cause pulmonary hemorrhage. And about 20% of patients with this syndrome will have other congenital abnormalities, such as malrotation, hydrocephalus, and cardiac issues. The surveillance protocol for these patients is a screening colonoscopy from a young age, usually 12 to 15, um, but this can start earlier if patients present with symptoms, and usually it's an annual colonoscopy if there are polyps found, or this can be spread out to every two to three years if there's no polyps found. Prophylactic surgery is not recommended routinely, but surgery may be indicated if there's too many polyps to be managed endoscopically, or obviously if there is the development of a cancer. And again, the two options include total colectomy or a proctocolectomy, depending on the degree of rectal involvement. But in this condition, most polyps are in the right colon, so leaving the rectum in situ is a reasonable approach. We've nearly made it to the end of our list of polyposis syndromes. Our last one is the P10 hamartomatous tumor syndromes. 
And the most well-known of these is Cowden's syndrome. Again, this is autosomally dominantly inherited. And the genetic abnormality is a mutation in the P10 gene, P-T-E-N, on chromosome 10Q. And this is a tumor suppressor gene. The presentation is multiple, again, hamartomatous polyps um, in the colon and in the stomach. And it's also associated with some extra intestinal manifestations that, again, are good spot questions. So it's worth looking up um, the picture of the mucocutaneous lesions that these patients can get. And I did mention this um, syndrome when we were talking about breast cancers. So these patients get mucocutaneous lesions on the um, mouth and lips. They can also have thyroid adenomas and goiter. They also get fibrocystic diseases of the breast and uterine lyomyomas. This condition is obviously associated with an increased risk of colorectal cancer, otherwise I would not be talking about it in this episode, but the risk isn't really clear. It's probably somewhere between 15 to 25% lifetime risk of colorectal cancer. And these patients often present with a heavy colon polyp burden, and they can be both benign and malignant polyps or potentially malignant polyps. And these patients um, should be surveilled with colonoscopy, but there's not really clear guidelines on how young they should start or how frequently the colonoscopies should happen. The main risk for these patients is a 50% lifetime risk of developing breast cancer and also about a 10% risk of the development of thyroid cancers. The Cleveland Clinic has a uh, P10 risk calculator tool, which helps you basically do a risk assessment for the risk of a person having a P10 mutation. And this can help guide who you should be referring for genetic counseling. So we finally got to the end of our list of polyposis syndromes. Now to move on to the non-polyposis syndromes. So this basically covers HNPCC or hereditary non-polyposis colorectal cancer, as well as Lynch syndrome. And these are the most commonly inherited colorectal cancer syndromes, accounting for about 3% of all colorectal cancer diagnoses. The difference between these two, I find is a little bit confusing and a recent podcast episode that I listened to from the St. Mark's Hospital in London, which was fantastic if you want to look that up, um, was basically saying that they're talking about changing the terminology again. So watch this space. But from what I understand, HNPCC is a clinical definition, which is defined by family history criteria. And Lynch syndrome is diagnosed genetically with a genetic test and is defined as the presence of a inherited mutation or a sporadic mutation in the DNA mismatch repair genes on chromosome 2P or 3P and can also include a deletion of the last few exons of the EPCAM gene, which results in silencing of the MSH2 gene, which is one of those DNA mismatch repair genes. So in terms of the HNPCC diagnosis, um, there's a few different criteria, but the one that I think is most commonly used is the revised Amsterdam criteria. And this is worth looking up, but basically diagnoses HNPCC based on these clinical criteria. So these criteria are at least three cases of um, HNPCC-associated cancer in relatives. So this includes cancers of the colorectum, endometrium, small bowel, 
ureter or renal pelvis. One of those has to be a first degree relative of the other. At least two successive generations should be affected. One case of colorectal cancer needs to be diagnosed before the age of 50 years old and FAP, familial adenomatous polyposis, which we talked about earlier in the episode, has to be excluded. I think the reason we have this HNPCC clinical criteria is because we don't know, we can't identify all of the potential genetic abnormalities or genetic mutations in families, but there are families that have high rates of colorectal or HNPCC associated cancers, and we probably just haven't identified what that gene mutation is yet. So Lynch syndrome is autosomally dominantly inherited and is mutations in those mismatch repair genes or MMR genes. And like I said, these are on chromosome 2P or 3P. And the four MMR genes to know are MLH1, MSH2 and MSH6, and PMS2. As their name suggests, these genes encode mismatch repair proteins. And if you have a abnormality in one of the mismatch repair proteins, then your genes are not being repaired properly. You get DNA damage or DNA errors, which can increase your risk of developing a malignancy. The diagnosis of Lynch syndrome can be made a couple of ways. The first sort of, I guess, classification system, because the exam loves to talk about classification systems to know, is the revised Bethesda guidelines, which are guidelines to tell you who you should be referring for a genetic test for looking for Lynch syndrome. Initially, I recorded out the revised Bethesda criteria as just a list, but it's quite long and I have no idea how I'm going to remember that for the exam. So lucky for me, someone's come up with a nice mnemonic, which I'll tell you about instead. Um, And this is the mnemonic Bethesda. The BET we just ignore, but starting with H, H stands for histopathological characteristics of a microsatellite unstable colorectal cancer. So these are cancers that have lymphoid aggregates or Crohn's-like lymphocytic reactions, are mucid or signet ring histopathological subtype, or that exhibit a medullary growth pattern. The E is for extra HNPCC cancers that are either synchronous or metanchronous. S is for single, single person in the family with colorectal or uterine cancer diagnosed in a first degree relative that's less than 50 years old. D is for double, two or more first or second degree relatives with a HNPCC associated tumor regardless of age. And A is age, so diagnosis in a patient of colorectal or uterine cancer at less than 50 years old. I think the Bethesda guidelines used to be used a lot more in the past, but nowadays most colorectal cancers will be stained with immunohistochemistry as a screening test looking for loss of those MMR proteins. Immunohistochemistry is used to stain for the MLH1, MSH2, MSH6, and PMS2 proteins on the outside of the cells. And if these are missing, then that means that that's abnormal and you can then go searching for microsatellite instability, which is the phenotypic expression of an MMR defect. 
And if you remember from our colorectal polyp episode, the reason why uh, just not having staining of one of those proteins is not enough to diagnose Lynch syndrome is because of that other pathway, the um, hypermethylation pathway, pathway that's been identified for serrated polyps in which the um, MLH1 protein is inactivated, but not because of a germline mutation, because of hypermethylation. Um, and in those patients, usually they will have a BRAF mutation, which if you remember from our genetic pathway system is one of the abnormalities that happens in that serrated polyposis pathway. But in Lynch syndrome, usually they won't have a BRAF mutation. So that can be one way to tell the difference between them. But the other thing is doing this PCR test to look for microsatellite instability, which is more diagnostic of a germline mutation in MMR and therefore Lynch syndrome. So to summarize all of that, basically patients who you should be thinking about HNPCC or Lynch syndrome and considering referring for genetic testing include patients that meet the revised Amsterdam criteria, that meet those revised Bethesda guidelines, that have colorectal or endometrial cancer before 50 years old, patients with a known family member with Lynch syndrome, patients with a high risk of a genetic mutation, and there are some computer prediction models that you could use, and patients who have uh, those stains on their tumor that would be consistent with a Lynch syndrome. The patients who have HNPCC or Lynch syndrome can have up to an 80% risk of the development of colorectal cancer. It does depend which of those MMR genes are affected. So in patients with an MLH1 or an MSH2 mutation, they have a 20 to 70 or 80% chance of development of colorectal cancer over their lifetime. And for patients with the MSH6 or PMS2, their risk is around 20%. And usually these tumors will occur at an earlier onset with a mean age between uh, 45 and 60, and they're more likely to be right-sided tumors and more likely to have synchronous and metachronous colorectal cancers. Um, like I said before, there are those characteristic histopathological findings that are associated with HNPCC and Lynch-associated cancers, which are those lymphocyte or lymphoid aggregates, mucinous tumors with a medullary growth pattern, proximal colon tumors that are poorly differentiated, signet ring differentiation, and patients who also have synchronous tumors. These patients are at also a high risk of developing other cancers. So they are at uh, about a 20% risk of developing gastric, ovarian, and urinary tract cancers. They have up to a 50% risk of endometrial cancers, depending on the genes affected. And they have a lower rates of other cancers, including small bowel, pancreatic, hepatobiliary, prostate, and breast cancers. In terms of screening for these patients, they should have yearly colonoscopies from 25 years old or five years before the earliest relative developed colorectal cancer. Prophylactic colectomy is not usually recommended in these patients. Um, they would only usually be offered a resection if they develop a cancer or they have more than one advanced adenoma. And young patients with cancers should be considered for a more extensive resection, such as an extended colectomy, um, but an older patient may only be offered a segmental resection of the cancer. 
The other interesting thing, thing with HNPCC and Lynch syndrome is that in the Australian uh, Wiki Cancer Guidelines, chemo prevention is suggested with aspirin, which is recommended from 25 years old. And there's some good studies that this decreases the incidence of colorectal cancer in this population. And also total abdominal hysterectomy and bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy is recommended in this group after childbearing and should be discussed with these patients. They would also usually be offered urinalysis from 30 to 35 years old, looking for urinary cytology to screen for urinary tract cancers. And in addition to this, because of their approximately 20% risk of gastric cancer, they should be offered a yearly gastroscopy from 30 to 35 years old. So to summarize in the briefest way possible, all of the genetic colon cancer syndromes are autosomally dominantly inherited, apart from the MUTYH-associated polyposis, which is autosomally recessively inherited. Patients with FAP get surgery. Everyone else gets a 12-month colonoscopy. HNPCC, you start the colonoscopies from 25 years old, and all of the others start when the patients are younger. And that concludes this episode on genetic colorectal cancer syndromes. I hope that was a succinct but thorough enough summary that you've learned something uh, about genetic colon syndromes. Thanks for sticking with me. I know it was a pretty heavy episode, uh, but hopefully it will be good for all of us to listen back to before the exam to cram some of those finer details. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast so that other people are able to find us. And I hope your studying is going really well. Talk to you again soon. Bye. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying!